You know, every time I hear that song, I just get insatiably thirsty. <laughs> you see, this is the power of suggestive <laughs> something or other. That's my Pavlovian response Welcome, to that. Welcome, my friends, to this fine radio program. It is called Smoking and Toasting. Uh, this is show number 94. We are all about craft beer, fine spirits, and hand-rolled cigars. Our show today, we are stealing the title from the uh, title of the book whose author we'll be interviewing. It's called Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out. It is the story of Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and the craft beer industry. And it is fascinating. I actually just finished the book uh, yesterday, and I'm like, I, I, I'm almost bummed that I finished it because I was enjoying reading it so much. Uh, so we'll get to that. We'll be talking with Josh Knoll. Uh, he will be our uh, special guest. He is a columnist for the uh, Chicago Tribune. <clears throat> writes about food and beer and and other uh, tasty topics and Josh Noel has uh, has spent quite a bit of time uh, working on this book and it has uh, just been released and uh, it's I I think it's it was really eye-opening for me about some things and I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed reading it so we're really looking forward to talking to Josh on this show I know it's gonna be super exciting the yeah. book was uh, you know I was expecting it to be a bit more of a dry read. And it's you know, not at all, is it's it? It's not yeah. at all. It's yeah. incredibly engaging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Incredibly it really is. engaging. And if you're even remotely, you don't have to be a total beer nerd, I think. No. To be, in fact, my wife is reading it and loving it, and she only drinks the occasional beer. Well, I can't wait to yeah. talk to him about it because I have so many questions. There's so many like underhanded, bizarre things going on <laughs> I know. behind the scenes, and it explained a lot to me. Yes, especially about like the distribution side. It was mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah, absolutely great. So, fantastic. so he's going to be on the show, and then as promised, we'll be uh, airing some of your filed reports from Ybor City. From when you were in Florida, that's going to be fun because yeah. I got some surprise. A couple, a couple of surprise <laughs> drinks. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that you'll I'm, find I'm entertaining. Really looking forward to finding that, finding out what you, uh, what you were up to out there. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to be tasting three different Goose Island beers today. Since Goose Island's the topic of the book, I thought it might do us good to check in on some of the Goose Island brews now that they are brewed and have been brewed for some time under Anheuser Busch AB InBev uh, watchmanship. And see if they still hold up. See if they're still as good as they once were. So we'll be tasting the um, Honker's Ale, which was the first one to take off in Chicago. Uh, not nearly as big there anymore because it was supplanted as their sort of big beer, their Shiner Bach, if you will, their you know best-known uh, sort of flagship beer. It was supplanted by 312 urban wheat ale and that's been the big particularly in chicago in the midwest that's the big seller for goose island and then finally one of their specialty beers will be tasting the sophie and i know you already the sophie are a fan of the sophie it's so, delicious yeah so we'll be talking about that we'll see how everything held up oh and guess what else we'll be tasting on the show today hmm let me see <clears throat> here's a clue hi 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 y'all Oh, <laughs> although that's not from is the it, original. Is version it going to be song. Guns and Roses? Yeah, it's Guns and Roses new whiskey. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's Bob Dylan's new whiskey. We'll be tasting his uh, his Tennessee bourbon, Heaven's Door Tennessee bourbon. You gotta love uh, uh, Guns and Roses version of that song because Axl Rose thought to himself, "You know what this song needs? A hook." <laughs> It just doesn't have yeah, one. It was written by, oh, I don't know, 
possibly the greatest songwriter of all time. <laughs> it really needs a but hook. It really needs a hook. Let me put my stamp on it. <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> and, and believe me, he was successful in that. Oh, man. By the way, uh, the Smoking and Toasting 100th show free for all is on the way. Details Woo! are coming, but we are very excited about the 100th show, and we're only, what, uh, like six shows away now. So I saw the email go out, too. Mm-hmm. I'm yep, pretty yep. excited about that. It's starting to look good. Uh, so, Ian, did you smoke anything interesting this week? I did. I actually uh, sat up last night and smoked a cigar while I was reading the uh, the book we're going to talk about today, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. was quite entertaining. You know, like for this job, sometimes when I have to work, that means I have to go outside and have a cigar and read a book. It's tough. It's a tough life, isn't it? It was actually work. Yeah. Um, it, it was, you know, one you of those were, things. You were actually preparing yourself for, <laughs> you know, for important things. It's, you know, it's a thing, you know? Yes. So, um, <laughs> so. Well, there we go. Sorry, I'm trying to get my uh, keyboard out of the way on my phone here. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so last night I went out and had a um, Arroyo Maduro. Are you looking for that? Yes, I was because <laughs> I have it on the title here, but it doesn't display the title on my notes page. So, <laughs> so I'd have to go back and figure that out. I don't want to get into that. So anyway, I had an Arroyo. Uh, this is uh, under the CLE family of brands, mm-hmm. and. Um, the Arroyo Maduro, let's see here. The size I had was the Toro 54 by 6 CBT mm-hmm. Maduro. Um, certainly this certainly looks delicious. Yeah, this thing's packaged beautiful. Look at the packaging mm-hmm, yeah. on that. Um, it has a uh, it has a band like a traditional cigar, very nice, classy-looking band. And then it the has, reason we have this is because you brought me one, yes, for, I, which I, I, for which I thank you. And let me just show show off the Yeah, look uh, how pretty that is. The packaging is So, nice? yeah, and then it has a, and then it has a, a, a nice, light, um, light uh, uh, weight paper, mm-hmm. uh, although in black, this is a royal all the way down the end to, to mm-hmm. the foot of the cigar. It's yeah, it's just gorgeous packing. Now the uh, the cigar itself, as you can see on the um, on the video, there is a dark, dark like chocolate. Kind of look at the top yeah, like there. dark chocolate brown. It's uh, a little oily. It's uh, quite oily and toothy, a little leathery in mm-hmm. texture. The wrapper. Mm-hmm. It's it was a gorgeous cigar. Um. And so my pre-light sniff notes on this, um, it was very fresh smelling, very barnyard earthiness, kind of light coffee and mocha are what I picked up on the notes when I put it up to my nose. The pre-light mm-hmm. draw, I use a punch, that's what I default to. Mm-hmm. The pre-light draw was effortless, light, spicy tang to the pre-light draw. Mocha and earth is what I kept getting out of this. I mean, mm-hmm. it was really, really nice. A little maybe coffee, maybe mocha, I don't know, somewhere in the, in the middle of that. So the initial light on this, I lit it up, uh, creamy, creamy, smooth smoke, big silky uh, smoke, light spice, and uh, when I tasted the spice, it hits the back of the tongue and the back of the throat just a little bit like cayenne does, right? but in such a nice way, you know, just a very light bit of spice. Cayenne can be a little overwhelming if it, you, yeah, know, if you get so, too much of it. Yeah, and it had a little of that kind of flavor to it, but not enough to take over everything else. I mean, it was good, just a good, kiss yeah. of it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then it had more of that mocha and, and kind of earthy kind of thing going on. I like that. The first third of this cigar, as I was reading my book, it was, it was wonderful. Sitting out there with cat in the lap, and I felt like a evil. Uh, yeah, uh, Doctor Evil. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have this outdoor cat named Attila. She's missing like half of an ear. Oh, and see, that's perfect. <laughs> but anyway, so she's sitting in my lap, and she's purring away. She drools when she purrs, which is pretty funny. Um, but anyway, so I'm sitting out there with a cigar, petting my cat, reading my book, and uh, and so the first third of this, uh, lots of notes of coca, uh, earth. 
uh, that little touch of cayenne in the back coffee. The burn was perfect. Awesome. And the ash was long and strong. Nice. When I got to the second third of this, the ash finally fell off. Mm-hmm. I didn't encourage it. I was careful with it, but I also didn't want it to fall on me. But the ash finally fell off. It was a third of the cigar long, which is a pretty good size ash. Um, more tangy, earthy spice, more coffee and mocha. Perfect burn. Wow. Like it never even variated from a perfect circle around this thing. That's awesome. I got to the third third of this, and then the second ash fell. Mm. So the second ash was just as long as the first ash, uh, and then the second ash fell. And the mocha and coffee ramps up substantially at this point. Like it just starts building in flavor. Nice. Not really uh, coffee intensity, but building in flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, the earth and the spice build intensity. And uh, and ramp up to a really big, like pretty amazing cigar. It still was on the high side of a medium cigar at that point in time. It's about a ten dollar, eleven dollar cigar wow. by itself. I'm giving it a solid six on this. I'm I enjoyed s- it tremendously. I am so thank you for bringing me one. Yeah, I'm it, so excited to smoke it. I was I was excited about. it. I was like, you got to have one. Okay, we're going to take a quick break because when we come back, uh, Josh Noel will be joining us. Josh is a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. He's the author of Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out: Goose Island, Anheuser Busch, and how craft beer became big business. Boy, do we have questions for him, and we'll be right back with Josh. This is smoking and toasting. Okay, I, I didn't do mine just because I wanted to. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, I'll ask you about yours when we get back. Yep. Uh, actually, we'll do it after the. Welcome back to Smoking and Toasting. This show is all about craft beer, fine spirits, and hand rolled cigars. It's show number 94, and we are brought to you by uh, B&B Butchers and Restaurant at 1814 Washington Ave in Houston and in the shops at Clear Fork in Fort Worth. Uh, without further ado, I'm so excited about our next guest on the show because he's written uh, the book that I probably enjoyed reading more than anything I've read at least in the last year or so. Uh, please welcome everyone, Josh Noel. Josh, is it Noel or Noel? No one's ever happy with this answer, but yeah. it really either one is fine. Either okay, <laughs> well, I'm happy at least. At least now I don't feel like I did it wrong. Well, it makes it harder to mispronounce yes. anyway. Uh, Bingo, exactly. Josh, you are a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Correct. And uh, what is your official like uh, category as a columnist? I, I, I realize you can probably write about whatever you want to, but what do you cover primarily? You really, uh, at this point, I guess I would be most accurately described as uh, a beer writer. I write about uh, beer from a cultural sense, you know, sort of like what it tastes like and the fun stuff and the trends and things like that. And then also somewhat from a business sense, because, you know, breweries opening, breweries closing, you know, it's uh, it's become a a pretty major, major league uh, industry. Uh, So, yeah, I get to dip my toe in a bunch of pools uh, when it comes to, to the beer. And uh, so you write for the Chicago Tribune. At some point, you came up with the idea to do this book on the history of Goose Island, how it originated, and in particular, what happened to it and what happened to the whole craft beer industry when it became, I guess, I guess it's fair to say the most notable sale of a craft brewery to a big brewer. Is that Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. I mean, there have been a... You know, some of the sales have caused barely a ripple. Some have created, uh, you know, let's say a medium-sized ripple. And then uh, right. there are the handful of sales that 
were really meaningful uh, in the beer industry, and the Goose Island sale is is certainly one of those because it was the first uh, major acquisition of an American craft brewery by a major uh, beer company, one of the biggies, and it, it ended up sort of uh, signaling where the industry was going. A whole bunch of of deals happened after that. Anheuser Busch, which bought Goose Island in 2011 went on to buy nine more American craft breweries plus craft breweries around the world. And then follow, so following the Goose Island sale came the, the other nine, and then Miller got involved, and Heineken got involved, and Constellation Brands, which right. owns Corona and Modelo, they got involved. But the Goose Island sale was really the, 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 the spark that lit the match, so to speak. Right. Um, that was the first hole in the yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that that's really when I knew that there was a book to be written about Goose Island, a book just about, oh, there's this, you know, really good craft brewery in Chicago called Goose Island is a part of a book like that unto itself would not be that interesting of a book because uh, every every brewery has its story. But when Goose sold to Anheuser-Busch, that's when it became that's when I really, really realized, oh, there's there's a book length story to be told here. Yeah, I, I, I was right. I was actually quite surprised when I sat down and started reading this book. I was expecting it to be basically, OK, this is what happened. This is what happened. List of facts um, and things like that. This book was absolutely engaging, like from Thank beginning you. and the writing uh, from your side. Kudos to you. The writing from your side was fantastic. I appreciate that. It it really it's, is uh, it really is a great read. Now, I read a bit of it poolside, so it even it even had that sort of yeah. like uh, you know sort of a smooth summer read vibe to it. So um, yeah, I love that. I'm on uh, social media. I'm getting all the, these tweets of people bringing the book, you know, on their beach vacation, and uh, and they're reading it. So it's like, yeah, why can't you read about uh, a fascinating beer industry tale at the beach? You know, it doesn't have to just be. Uh, a, a thriller or a mystery or whatever. We mentioned the title of the book in the last segment, Josh, but let me give it again for anybody that's just coming on board here. Barrel-Aged Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. How how would you, as compared to, say, other industries, how would you compare the rise of craft beer? Has this been like, uh, in terms of its becoming as big a business as it has become? Is this... Is this like meteoric? Is it is it slow compared to other things? What's your take on it? Uh, it was my take is that it was sort of a a slow build, and then it happened all at once. That's logarithmic, um, I believe. <laughs> I believe say right. again? Yeah, logarithmic Yo, is, okay. is what Ian said. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, for thirty-ish years, it was there was a slow burn of you know when. When uh, in the late 70s, there were fewer than 100 breweries in, in the United States. Now there are 6,500 almost. Um, and so, you know, it just it built year by year by year, growing and, you know, tastes slowly changed. We used to, you know, you were a Bud guy, you were a Miller guy, you were a Schlitz guy, uh, whatever it was. And the way we drank beer and what we wanted just slowly changed. And people wanted variety. They wanted fresh. They wanted local. Um and it and we wanted more and more of it, and the options came, and the industry grew, and then it, yeah, as you said, the the dam sort of broke with this deal, and that's when it sort of it it went from this sort of cozy collegial industry uh, to just all, you know all bets were off, and it was just it was a new frontier, and it's just and and the the major uh, beer companies had to get involved. It couldn't just be a mom and pop industry anymore. It was suddenly an industry that the billionaires needed. 
and that's uh, that's so they opened up their wallets and they they, they bought their way in. A similar things happened actually to in a lot of other industries, the radio industry, the banking industry, where all of a sudden there would be a a moment where the dam broke and yeah. uh, where the big guys started coming in and and really started to to gobble everything up. And and what what's interesting about your book is that it's not just a one sided craft beer fans slam of the big guys. You certainly point out where you think they made missteps and 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 what could potentially not be good for craft beer. But I thought it was a really fair telling of the story. Thanks. Yeah, no, that was really the that was the ultimate goal was to 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 break news, basically to tell a new story and because I knew there was a lot of stuff still on the table that hadn't been reported yet, that hadn't been unearthed. And uh, I feel like I was pretty fortunate uh, that I was able to, to get a lot of that. And then to, you know, tell an accurate story and to tell a fair story. And, you know, I can sit here and make the argument uh, that, uh, you know, craft beers is, uh, well, let's put it this way. There's, there's sort of a, a question that, a thread that ran through the book that sort of kept coming up was, has craft beer won or is craft beer lost? Right, uh, and some people argue that craft beer won because it forced big beer to change. It craft beer made people drink beer differently, and big beer had to get involved. Big beer had to have an IPA in its tanks. It couldn't just be Bud and Bud Light anymore. Uh, and then there's the argument that craft beer lost because now you have big beer poised to become the dominant uh, producer of craft beer in the United States. So I think that, you know, both, both arguments are there to be made, and I wanted the book to sort of let the reader decide for him or herself, you know, wh- where they fall in it, and I just wanted to sort of give them all the tools, and you know what, Big Beer doesn't want you to have all the tools. Anheuser-Busch doesn't want you to know that uh, Goose Island beer is often, most often, made in the same tanks as Bud and Bud Light. They want it to still speak as this Chicago brand, and you guys are dealing with it down there with Carbach, you know? Yeah. I mean, they, they don't really want, they want Carbach to stand on its own and speak for itself as a, as a Houston brand. They don't want it to be known as an Anheuser-Busch brand. Um, so my, my intention with the book was to definitely sort of connect some dots that uh, the big beer companies don't necessarily want to be connected on your behalf, and, but then for you to decide what it means. Um, Pull the curtain back you know, a is it good? Yeah. It's bad? It's, you know, it's, it's, that's to be determined by each consumer and how they spend their money. So one of the interesting you mentioned Carbach because we uh, you know we have Carbach here in town. A couple things uh, I noticed uh, just going from what you said in the book about Goose Island and versus the Carbach thing. Goose Island had established themselves pretty big and even more regionally uh, before they really got the attention of AB InBev. Um, Carbach was bought before they got quite that big, like as mm-hmm. if they were looking ahead. The other. Uh, thing that I noticed too is in the book you mentioned that uh, Goose Island decided they wanted to brew a Pilsner and ABMF said no way. Right. You're a logger, sorry, mm-hmm. not a Pilsner. And they uh, said, yeah, well, I think, it, I think it was a Pilsner. Yeah, oh, was it? And they said absolutely no way because that's going to be a direct competition. The first right. beer that got dropped when uh, Carbach was taken over was their sympathy for the logger got dropped in terms of they stopped making they it took it off the market they yeah. took it off the market hmm. and, and what a great beer that was although in fairness there was very little similarity between sympathy for the lager and a budweiser 
I mean, Sympathy for the Lager was brown and malty and, and had all this character to it. I, I just don't think those two beers would have ever appealed to the same drinker. I just wonder if yeah, be- and- because they were shooting for that same market, if that might have been a point there. Well, I think Anheuser. So initially, Anheuser Busch, the first couple of years that they owned Goose Island, they they had no idea what to do with it. They had really no idea what craft beer was uh, at that point. And those were the days when they were saying Goose Island will never make a a, a large scale pilsner or any kind of lager because that's what we do, and we don't want you competing with us. Bud and Bud Light are our flagships, and you're this little you know cute thing off in the corner. Right. They have since learned ab has learned a lot they've gotten a lot savvier with their understanding of craft beer and i've come to realize that yes craft beer companies need to make pilsners they need to make lagers people want that and they don't compete with budweiser and bud light they uh they're their their own proposition really um as far as the carbox thing mike so i i'm guessing that they they didn't kill that beer uh for any insidious reasons such as competing with bud and bud light my guess is that they're just they're all in on uh, what's the flagship? It's probably an IPA from Carbach, it's, right? It's Hopadillo and Love Street are probably right. the two big... Uh, oh, right. Is uh, Love Street a Kolsch? I want yes, to say yeah, it's something it's a, easy drinking, right? It's a very light Kolsch, but it's got some some flavor profile to it. So it's uh, Yeah, so, it's so that, that they probably just calculated that those two beers were really, you know, where they where consumer interest uh, lies. But yeah, so uh, you made a good point, though. Goose Island was very well established when AB bought them, and I think with Carbach, what they were doing was it was a more it was a regional play. I mean, Houston is what fourth biggest city in the country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, I would assume a very uh, large and growing craft beer market, and mm-hmm. it's you know you look at a map and you look at sort of the demographics and the trends. That's that's a that's a darn good place to own a brewery a lot more attractive than you know little rock right nothing against little rock yeah um and so i think that had a lot to do with ab's interest in uh in a brewery like carbach texas came a bit late to the craft beer party but once it really and now of course we've had you know saint arnold and uh, shiner of course have both been around for quite a while but in in terms of of the state really opening up to craft beer, I think it was a little late to the party. But once it hit, it accelerated like crazy. And I'm guessing, and I'm sure they've got stats on all of this. But at the time they took over uh, Carbach, they probably were looking at Texas as one of the faster growing and certainly a very populous area, uh, one of the faster growing places for craft beer. So I could I could see where it was attractive to them. What I found interesting is from your perspective as the writer of the book, um, the Carbach sale uh, really only gets mentioned you know marginally in in the book. It doesn't get nearly as much um, uh, nearly as much ink in the book as. Uh, some of the other breweries that AB took over, not including Goose Island, um, was that because you in Chicago you weren't really feeling the ripple, feeling the backlash uh, the same way that let's say you did for Wicked Weed? Yeah, well, we don't get Wicked Weed. We don't get either brewery distributed here. Uh, we probably will eventually. I mean, AB buys these breweries to grow them, um, but the reason Wicked Weed just uh, reverberated that sale so much more nationally than mm-hmm. Carbach. It's really the the Carbach sale was among those that probably generated the least amount of reaction. And so I think we, that's just because it was a younger brewery in a, as you say, a more developing 
uh, craft beer market, whereas was Wicked some, Weed was... Oh, go ahead. I was just saying, there was some pushback here locally. A number oh, of sure. the, yeah. you know, of the, you know, very craft-friendly uh, bars and restaurants took it off of the menu, but it mm-hmm. also then started showing up everywhere else. And so yeah, it, you it, just... Yep, in that's, that that's sense, how it works. Yeah, in exactly. that sense, the AB strategy really worked. What they lost in terms of taps and, and you know, good graces of the people, they probably made up for, a, you know, a number of times over just in how many new taps they got. And I can't tell you how many places I go in that are, you know, not necessarily beer specialty places, and I'll say, what do you have that's an IPA? And they go, oh, we have Hopadillo. And I'll say, yep. well, do you have anything else? No, we have Hopadillo. So they have Bud, really? Bud Light, Miller Light, and Hopadillo. You know, and yep. and yep. that's uh, and and there's not that there's anything wrong with Hopadillo. It's certainly not my favorite IPA, but uh, but well, it's a and, and it also works against the idea of consumer choice. Right? Well, that's right. I mean, and that's and that's one of the the complaints that um, you know certain onlookers, such as the Brewers Association, which is the uh, uh, you know, represents more than 4,000 craft brewers, trade group, coast to coast. They're based in Colorado, and they've they've been at the forefront of um, trying to bring attention to Anheuser-Busch's craft strategy and what they argue. And, I, and you know, you just told a story that shows that their argument has some merit, is that in certain ways uh, the big beer push into craft beer, and especially Anheuser-Busch's, because Anheuser-Busch is the biggest of big beer, uh, it it winds up being uh, limiting consumer choice, and it's anti-competitive in a way. Well, they've uh, gone from and it, and it, yeah. they've gone from you will drink our crappy beer to you will drink our craft beer. Yeah, you will drink our crappy crappy beer or our better beer. <laughs> Josh, exactly, and in some cases, the the, the better beer it, it inches toward the crappy. I'm sorry to say, like the Goose Island beer that's made in AB tanks now just isn't as good as what it was when it was made in Chicago is the truth of the matter. Now, it's really interesting that you say that because we normally taste three beers on every show and this week we're tasting oh, we don't we don't usually taste three from the same uh, from the same brewery unless that brewery is being on as a guest but today we are going to be tasting three uh, Goose Island beers including the 312 Urban uh-huh. Wheat and the Honkers Ale uh, but I don't we don't necessarily have the same sort of perspective we're going to taste the Sophie as well I was looking for okay. Matilda, but I couldn't find it anywhere uh, here in in Houston. But uh, in any case, we don't have the same uh, sort of perspective and background as you to compare, say, a Honkers Ale now to what it tasted like back in the day in Chicago before AB was part of the picture. Yeah. Uh, well, so the three one two, and you'd never really know this from from just holding the beers in your hand, but that three one two Urban Wheat Ale is literally made in the same tanks where Anheuser-Busch makes Bud and Bud Light. Right. Um, that beer is, I can say with confidence, is a shell of what it used to be. Wow. Um, Do you think to the same degree as Rolling Rock? Like, I thought Rolling that, Rock beer, is that beer went now. way downhill. Yeah, I don't... I gotta be honest, is I don't remember Rolling Rock being that good before... <laughs> okay, that's a fair point. <laughs> it was point. bought by Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> but it, it did, I mean, it did, they picked up and that was, you know, that was a, a huge thing. Anheuser-Busch bought Rolling Rock. Though, to be fair, this was the old Anheuser-Busch before it had been acquired by Anhe- by InBev, which right. then became Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh, yeah, Rolling Rock was uh, 
was a, a huge uh, PR disaster for, for Anheuser-Busch. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in some ways you can argue something similar is happening here. So that 312 Urban Wheat Ale, yeah, is made by Anheuser-Busch. Again, not that you'd ever know it from looking at the label. The Honkers Ale was made by Anheuser-Busch, and that beer has fallen so far out of favor that they actually stopped making it, and now it's made back in Chicago again. So if you have an older bottle, it was probably made in, by Anheuser-Busch. If it's a newer bottle, it could be one uh, that's made in Chicago. And actually, I can tell you what to look for on the label. Okay, hang on. I'm going to grab it while you do. <laughs> okay. And the Sophie is actually, so the Sophie is an example, a, a, a happy story, uh, still made in Chicago. And last I had it, i got to be honest, I haven't had it in a few months, um, or maybe a year even. Uh, it, was still, it was still a pretty darn good beer. Uh, so that's one that Anheuser-Busch really hasn't messed with. That's still made in Chicago. So, they they didn't really Sophie is yeah yep. they did they didn't really mandate any changes or or force it to be made in Bud Light tanks or anything like that right? Kurt, well yeah and that that would just never work. I mean a beer <laughs> like that is you know you'll taste it and see it's just it's a different it's a different proposition altogether and they don't want the yeast that's in Sophie in anywhere near the Bud and Bud Light tank. right. <laughs> uh, Josh, I've got my uh, bottle uh, a bottle of the Honkers here. What am I looking for to see if it's an old okay, bottle or a so, new bottle? So turn it on its side and look for a location uh, where it's made in the fine print. Mm-hmm. It's either it's going to say, it'll probably say Chicago, but yep. then the question is, does it also say Baldwinsville, New York, and or Fort Collins, Colorado, any other locations? And again, and this is the fine print on the side of the bottle, mm-hmm. um, you know, with sort of the legalese stuff. Do you see a location mm-hmm. on there? It says Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Um, and that's it? And yeah. that's that's it in that area. I'm just looking to see if it's anywhere else on the label, because I did see. Oh, it was on the three one two, where it has mm-hmm. other locations listed as well. Right. Exactly. So that yeah. that's the the giveaway on all these Anheuser Busch made craft beers is. So the one that so the Honkers you have was made in Chicago. Okay. Um, because that is now the only place they're making it again. It'll be, it'll be um, interesting. But as It'd be interesting, mm-hmm. and again, we don't have the perspective that you have of how it might compare to what Honkers tasted like when it was originally made in Chicago. Yeah, and you know, the truth with Honkers is that it, it it's a hard beer to make, and it's a hard beer to make well. Some batches turn out better than others. Hmm. Um, so, you know, what it, your, your taste buds won't lie. It could be a great batch, and even though it's made in Chicago, it could not be a great batch. Right. Um, and so, and uh, so, the three one two has multiple locations. Probably it says Fort Collins, Colorado, and Baldwinsville, yep. New York. That's right. Uh, and those those are Anheuser Busch breweries. Mm-hmm. And if it has multiple locations on it, and this goes for any AB brand, uh, then that means it was made by Anheuser Busch at one of those massive breweries where they also make Bud and Bud Light. And you know, at some point, if they haven't already, they're going to probably scale up Carbach too, and they'll probably start making Carbach in Fort Collins or Baldwinsville or one of those places. Yeah, so if you want to know if your Carbach is made locally or if it's made by Anheuser Bush, do that exact same thing. Turn the bottle on its side or the can, look at the very, very fine print, and see, does it have multiple locations named, or does it just say Houston, Texas? Josh, uh, if, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, if it hadn't been Goose Island, if John Hall had ultimately said no, mm-hmm. where do you think the dam would have wound up bursting? Who who would it would have who would it have been? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, 
I don't know the answer, of course. Um, but you, I think your question makes a, a very important point that if it hadn't been Goose Island, it would have been someone else. Right. Um, someone was going to go first. Uh, Goose Island sold for $38.8 million. Uh, now we see breweries more routinely selling for, uh, you know, in the one... One hundred fifty to two hundred fifty million dollar range. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a couple isolated cases, we saw a billion dollar sale. Um, so people, you know, will say, "Oh, I can't believe Goose Island sold for so little." And what I usually say to them is, "Someone had to go first, right. and uh, it was Goose Island. Valuations were lower then, and Goose Island, as you saw in the book, there, you know, Anheuser Bush made a lot of mistakes with them because." Mm-hmm. They were first, uh, and if it hadn't been them, it you know Anheuser Busch was was knocking on a lot of doors. They were looking at Long Trail in Vermont. They were looking at Boulevard in Kansas City. Uh, they were looking at New Belgium and and Fort Collins, Colorado, at a certain point. Um, and you know none of those worked. I don't think any of those breweries wanted it to be them either. Um, but if it hadn't been Goose, it would have been someone. Do you think Goose Island would have survived? had they not sold and had the cash infusion because they were they were struggling with how to manage their growth. Yeah, but they were yeah, they're growing like crazy. I mean what they needed was new equipment and to grow more, but they yeah, they Goose Island was thriving at the time of their sale. They they could not make enough beer to keep up with demand. Um but they, they did have a problem. They had a brewery making far more beer than it should be making and they were having to make I think 80% of production was at 312 Urban Wheat Ale that you're about to drink, or, you know, the old version of it. Um, and they needed, they wanted to be able to make uh, more beer and more different kinds of beer. And so they, they had a problem they needed to solve. Uh, and Anheuser-Busch was, uh, you know, solved a lot of those problems by being able, you know, I mean, who, who, who has more equipment? at the ready than Anheuser-Busch in yeah, this right. country. <laughs> uh, so that, yeah, so they were able to solve the problem for Goose Island. Um, but, you know, they also sort of uncorked some new problems for Goose Island at the same time. Yeah, for sure. In your opinion, Josh, how would you say ultimately Chicago has been about this? Has Chicago, would you say overall, sort of forgiven Goose Island? Is it still... A thing uh, to the degree that it was, or close to the degree that it was, or would you say that it 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 may still be selling well, but isn't revered in the same way? In Chicago, I would say it is not not revered in the same way in Chicago. I think it is uh, certainly it is respected and it is appreciated, and I don't think there's any hard feelings against John Hall, the founder, for selling. I think. Plenty of people don't like the decision he made, but he also earned the right to make that decision. Right. And I don't think anyone doubts that. Um, but Goose Island had a really rough 2017 in Chicago. Um, uh, you know, sales of its flagship beer, Goose Island IPA, were way down. Uh, sales of 312, which used to just own this town, were way down. Um, I mean, what? we're talking like down 30, 40%. What's replacing um, it uh, when in places where the sales are down? What are people drinking instead? Is it just a combination so of that, everything? Uh, yeah. I mean, and that, that's so that you, you sort of got to like the part of it. So it, it's not all necessarily on Goose Island's shoulders. It's not even all Goose Island's fault. They were at the top and, you know, or near the top, you got nowhere to go but down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, there's more and more competition and, um, 
people are, you know, tastes have just fragmented all over the place. And people are drinking all sorts of beers uh, at all different times and experimenting and looking for what's new. And, you know, Goose Island IPA is about as uninteresting as IPA gets. And IPA is just filled with fascinating propositions left and right. And people want local. They want fresh. They want, you know, they like the sort of the... The, the intimacy vibe of walking into a smaller brewery, being able to talk to the brewer, see where the beer's made, and walk out with a four-pack that was, you know, canned yesterday. Yesterday. And yeah. Goose Island just doesn't offer that anymore. But their main rival is uh, here now is called Revolution Brewing, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very fast-growing brewery, uh, funny enough, started by a former Goose Island brewer. Um, and Revolution's flagship beer is called Antihero IPA, Nice. And that beer has supplanted Goose Island IPA nice. as the, the city's top seller. So, yeah. so one of the one of the interesting points I found, and this was early in the book, where uh, you were talking about how uh, big beer was uh, treating their customers. It's it was amazing. You pointed out that you know they're expecting their customer to drink the same beer every time, every day, all day, and no one eats that way. Like right. people were so craving different flavors and didn't even realize yep. it at some point you know yep yep yeah one of the exactly uh, and that, i'm sorry go ahead no, go ahead go ahead josh oh I, oh I was gonna say um yeah i mean that was really the catalyst for the everything that happened with craft beer um yeah we uh you know we went through a, a stretch where uh you know tastes homogenized really in, in every direction i mean you know, I I say in the book that, you know, if you breakfast was cornflakes, soup was Campbell's, you know, bread was wonder. Right. I mean, we just sort of and mm-hmm. then we did. We got out of that with food first. And then it, it happened with wine. California wine industry uh, grew up coffee. You know, Starbucks started and then mm-hmm. sort of beer came last. Right. Um, but it was, you know, looking back, it's sort of a no brainer. I mean, as a nation, we love beer. Um and why why shouldn't there be diversity? Why should all the all beer taste the same and we drink the same thing every time we want a beer? As you say, we don't we don't eat every time we're hungry, we don't eat the same thing, right? Um, and craft beer just yeah tapped into that and uh, and and yeah, sure enough, the people when presented with options and flavor and diversity and freshness, uh, people people said, yeah, this is this is a pretty good idea. Josh Noel writes about beer for the Chicago Tribune, and he is the author of what I I think we both think is just an excellent book called Barrel-Aged Out and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became Big Business. Josh, two more quick questions for you, if, if sure. you have the time. Uh, the yes, first is The first is that in the book, you, you make the point, um, actually at several places in the book, about how big beer, AB InBev in particular, has learned a lot from the process of acquiring craft beer. Uh, you also point out the Super Bowl ad where they basically kind of, you know, mocked craft consumers at the same time they were, you know, working on buying Goose Island. Does it feel like they've learned that lesson at all? Because this whole Bud Light Dilly Dilly campaign that came out last year was the same exact thing. It was It was basically calling craft beer fans and people who wanted something interesting and diverse and what they were uh, drinking, you know, yeah, uh, off to the dungeon with you. Like, you you don't even know what's good was the whole 
you know, was the whole point of that whole ad campaign. Uh, did that surprise you that they went back to insulting Kraft again? Uh, no, <laughs> I'll never be surprised by that. They're, um, <laughs> the truth is, is they're, you know, they're a, they're a massive, massive, massive company um, with a lot of competing interests under one roof. So, you know, I think there's occasionally some, the Bud guys will do something that they see as in their interests that will uh, maybe tick off the craft guys a little bit. Mm. Um, that's just going to happen. So, you know, the, the irony of the, the dilly dilly thing is that Bud Light, the Bud Light brand is now being run by a guy named Andy Goler, who's a, uh, an Anheuser-Busch lifer. But before he was uh, running Bud Light, he was running Goose Island. So yeah, he actually... To, yeah, you talk about him a lot yeah, in the book. Yeah, yeah, he's he's in there. Um yeah, you know, it's just there is a certain there's a certain sort of insincerity when Anheuser-Busch talks about how deeply they respect craft beer and want to be part of it because yeah, the 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 entire uh organism that is Anheuser-Busch InBev um parts of it disdain craft beer and and the threat that it uh represents to to those huge legacy brands. But that doesn't mean that certain parts of, of the you know the, uh, the the twelve-headed monster aren't sincere in their appreciation of craft beer. I think it's just it's just it gets complicated because there's there's so many uh, so many competing agendas within the one company. Though of course, ultimately, at the end of the day, you know the, the, it does funnel back to one agenda, which is uh, you know the stock price right. and the executives getting their million-dollar bonuses. bonuses yep. So. It's all about at the end of the day. That's that's it. Does all funnel back to there? It's all about this quarter and hitting the bonus. Mm-hmm. There Josh, you go. Final question: uh, Is there anything that you are drinking right now that you thought was notably and particularly good of of any brand? Anything you've tried that you've been very impressed with of late? A beer or two? Hmm. Um, well, I would I would mention the the one thing I've been most enjoying this summer, but it wouldn't do you much good because it's from a tiny brewery. Here in Chicago, and uh, the odds of finding it in Houston are about zero. Well, at the um, same time, we do have listeners all over the place, and uh, and, okay. and I'm you know in Chicago more often than you might think. So, okay. Well, I will say that this summer, a little brewery up here called Spiteful Brewing uh, just released a brand new beer called Spiteful Lager. So it's just it is a four point seven percent lager. It's a bright, clean, wonderful summer beer. Uh, but it's just, but it's really, it, it's incredibly refreshing and drinkable, but also really interesting without being sort of showy. It's just, to me, it's the perfect summer beer. Perfect balance. Um, so nice. if, it, it, oh yeah, yeah, balance and, and, uh, but yeah, and just really interesting. And, but at the end of the day, you can also just turn your brain off, not think about it and just drink it on repeat and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, lower alcohol, so you can also drink a few in the in the hot sun and not uh, not fall over. It actually would play really well down in Houston. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so if anyone's in, in Chicago, check out Spiteful Lager. It's just a, a lovely, uh, very easy-drinking beer. Very nice. Well, uh, Josh, I can't thank you enough uh, for being on the show, but also just for writing this book. I think it was, it was almost like a love letter to craft beer fans that uh, that have felt like 
like I guess I understand what happened, but I don't really understand what happened. And and to me, like your ability in the book to kind of fill in those gaps and tell the stories behind it and, and the way that you, um, you know, describe the people involved. You know, you don't wind up being mad at John Hall and Greg Hall when you read the book, but sometimes you go, oh, gosh, I just wish they'd made some different decisions. You know, it, but it's that's how that's how I think the book is really well balanced. Is that it was, you? It was very poignant and not uh, not judging. Yeah, not preachy. Yeah, yeah for not sure. Preachy. For sure. And we appreciate that. You know, we we often say on this show, isn't it really about what's in the bottle? But there is more to it than that. And, you know, we we recognize that. So, uh, yeah, in some ways, that's that's the exact line that that the big beer companies exactly want are trumpeting. is Hey, just think about what's in the bottle. Just think about what's in the glass. Don't yeah. think about who's actually making it or how it got into your bottle or your glass. Or um, Soylent beer. So yeah, I mean, there's 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 both sides. But yeah, well, no, I really appreciate every all your feelings on the book. It's really it's wonderful to hear, and I'm glad it resonated with you, and uh, I'm glad it was meaningful, and I really appreciate you uh, having me on to uh, to chat about it. If you are uh, in Houston anytime, the beers are on us, and we can find some really good ones. Trust us. That sounds good. Yeah, I'd love <laughs> to come down there and do a reading and. Uh, yeah, I, I like your town. I think it's I think it's a cool city. So it's, hopefully, let's make that happen. It's become quite a place for beer. I would say in the last two to three years, mm-hmm. uh, you really, if you were here more than two or three years ago, you would not recognize it as a as a beer town. It's it's really become craft crazy down here. So it's uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Josh, thank you so much, Josh Neal. Uh, I'm sorry, Josh Noel or Noel, yeah. uh, the columnist yeah. for the Chicago Tribune. He's the author of Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser Busch, and how craft beer became big business. If you are even marginally interested in beer, uh, read the book. It's a it's a great read. Josh, thank you very much. Thank you, fellas. Awesome. Take care. All right, it's smoking and toasting. We are brought to you by B and B Butchers and Restaurant at eighteen fourteen Washington Ave in Houston, and in the shops at Clear Fork in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, we will be right back and do a little Goose Island tasting right after this. Just smoking and toasting. Oh, yeah. It's the program that's all about craft beer, fine spirits, and hand-rolled cigars. Uh, we are brought to you by B&B Butchers and Restaurant at 1814 Washington Ave in Houston and in the shops at Clear Fork in Fort Worth. Thank you to Josh Noel, the columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Josh Noel. And the author of Barrel Aged Stout and Selling Out for being on the show. Very interesting guy and a wonderful book. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it's it's so engaging. I was I was just amazed at how good it was. And what a great interview! That, yes, that guy yeah, was. No, he was. He was a fabulous. He was right on. So I will tell you. I've just opened up the uh, Goose Honkers Ale, as Josh pointed out, because of the labeling, we can tell that this is Honkers Ale that is now made back at the Goose Island Brewery in Chicago. So Honkers started out as Goose Island's first hit back when they were essentially a Chicago and only in the surrounding area uh, type brewery. Honkers was their first runaway hit. It was their Shiner Bach, for lack of a better way to uh, to describe it. Uh, right. People in the Texas area would understand uh, that it was their flagship beer. It was slowly supplanted by uh, Goose 312 Urban Weed Ale, which we will actually try next. Uh, That happened for a couple of reasons. First of all, they identified that after a period of time, um, 
Honkers was appealing to the people who had liked it when it first came out, but it hadn't really grabbed the youth, uh, right. uh, the the younger uh, drinker. And they so 312 was targeted a little younger with the packaging and the way it was. And also, uh, Honkers took a lot longer uh, to brew. It was a lot harder to brew. And 312 helped Goose brew more beer of the right quality and and when it became the city's you know favorite goose island beer it became a real uh win for them financially because they could produce a lot more of it a lot faster just because of the way it was brewed. one of the things i loved about that um book as well was just uh, the story behind each one of these uh iconic brews yes was was pretty amazing because they talk about how they came about and mm-hmm. how like like this was John's favorite. Mm-hmm. Honkers ale. Honkers was, ale was John's favorite. And he, to to the end of the book, even what he would have right when was, he would go down to the tap room was yeah. a Honkers ale. And mm-hmm. um, but the three one two and uh, one of my favorite parts about when he talks about the three one two is they put it in front of a panel and. All the young people got what it meant. The three one two urban wheat ale got right. that. None of the old people got it. Like after forty years old, no one got what it meant. They were like, "What is this?" Three one two, by the way, is the area code yes. in Chicago, yes. or one of the area codes in Chicago. Yes. So it'd be the Houston equivalent of naming the the beer seven one three, right? Right. And and when uh, when AB InBev was buying Goose, they actually went out into different areas and trademarked like I'm sure they trademarked 713 in Houston and they trademarked and in fact that is where one of the beers we've really enjoyed recently here came from right. and it was 805 which is Firestone Walker's uh, beer in California. That was a great story because Firestone Walker that got 805 wind of what was so happening, good. and they rushed a beer to market called uh, 805, and it has wound up becoming their flagship beer. And I didn't look into it, but uh, the uh, 412 in Austin. Mm, oh, 512. Or 512, yep. sorry. 512, 512 in Austin. Obviously, they didn't get that from. That's the brewery name, but that's though, the brewery not, name. The, not the actual oh, okay. individual beer. Because 512 has a pecan porter and a number of other things. They also have an IPA that's, that's pretty darn good. So, Goose Honkers Ale, uh, when it was bigger and when it was first, when the brewery was first purchased by AB InBev, they moved production of it to St. Louis, where it was made in the same tanks mm-hmm. as Bud Light. Uh, but it has kind of fallen out of favor, not selling the way that it used to. Uh, and so now it's been moved back to being produced in Chicago. And uh, I've actually had this beer before and felt like I liked it quite a bit. I've had it before, and I don't know what version of it I've had before because uh, it's been quite a while. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it was after um, InBev took over, and it wasn't recently, so it was probably when InBev was brewing it outside of Chicago. Um, and I remember thinking, meh. Yeah, whatever. This um, this is drinkable. It's got a nice flavor profile. It doesn't it doesn't make me go wow. I like um, the maltiness to the it. The maltiness I do like, and there's a mm-hmm. slight bitter finish uh, mm-hmm. that that I also enjoy. And I if assume that's the if you're looking for the hoppiness of an IPA, it's not there. If you're looking yeah. for the maltiness of say a a brown ale or something like that, it's not there. So right, it's somewhere in the middle. And to me, this 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 feels like a few compromises. It's not undrinkable by any means. It's not I can bad. See, it just doesn't have a lot of depth of character to it. Well, I can it, see where this became something that was important to them to get out in Chicago because in the early days of Goose Island, they were having to win their customers over, not people who were already craft right. brewery drinkers. 
but people who were ordering Budweiser and and uh, and Miller Lite. I can see if I would have walked in and you had Budweiser and you had this, I can see where I would enjoy this tremendously mm-hmm. compared right. to exactly. that. Exactly, exactly. Um, and it's a good uh, sort of a gateway beer. Yeah, it's it's a solid brew. Um, like like I said, it doesn't wow me. But then again, that might be because my palate is used to. I love you know huge brews overall. Mm-hmm. I do like the multi flavor on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wish I had more of it. We'll uh, we'll get to the three one two in a minute. But there, we, there's so much to do on the show. Um, and I really wanted you to talk a little bit about this uh, video clip that we're going to see that was one of the uh, Ian on the Move reports filed from uh, Ybor City in Florida when you were there a couple of weeks ago. So uh, while in Ybor City, we wandered up and down. We had cigars. We talked to a bunch of people. We had a great time. But we ended up in this place called uh, Rock Brothers Brewery, and it was uh, right there, right off, you know, block off of, uh, off of the strip in Ybor City. And uh, we were hanging out and having, they actually didn't have a whole lot of their brews in stock uh, at the time. They weren't ready. They had a bunch of guest taps and things like that. And so we just got chatting. Um, but one of the bartenders started making this drink. And I noticed that my wife was, she, she loves mixed drinks, you know, and she was captivated. And when I see that look on her face, I know something's about to happen, okay? Because my wife's a little bit like wind her up, watch her go. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you've ever met my wife, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, um, so uh, the next thing I know, I smell smoke in a good way, but smell smoke. And I look down at the uh, end of the bar, and this bartender has this crazy concoction going on with all this craziness. My wife is staring at this going, I have to have one of those. <laughs> so we said, okay. And immediately, you know, Roy was the bartender's name. So Roy. Uh, my wife has to have one of these, so he comes over and he prepares this. This is a, this is an experience. It's not just a mixed drink, okay? Right. So he comes over and he prepares this thing, and and it was amazing to watch him do. He was entertaining. He was fun. Um, so I I said, you know what? I want to get you doing that on uh, on camera. I want to I want to show our audience this because uh, we had talked a little bit about the show. I want to show our audience this. So we did this. And, uh, and I made an appointment for him. I came back on Friday when he had a pretty empty bar, and we could take a little time to do this. So we're going to go ahead and play that clip right Let's now. I'm not look. sure. He did two different drinks. I'm not sure which clip you're about to play, but we'll see. Let's take a look. This is Ian with Smoking and Toast, and we're back again with Roy up at Rock Brothers Brewing. Um, so when you gave me your number, you gave me uh, Roy Sip Consultant. Tell me what that's about. Uh, SIP Consulting is a hospitality management company that I own with a couple partners. And basically what we do is, uh, layman's term, if you've ever seen John Taffer for Bar Rescue, uh, that's kind of what we can do for you. Uh, cocktail design, staff training, everything from build out to your, your concept, inventory services. I mean, we pretty much can come in and either help you be a better operator or get you off the ground and up and running for your startup. Nice. Nice. So you can take a bar with no experience and turn them into an operating machine, turn them into something that works. Of course. I mean, I, I, we would do everything from, you know, training your staff, helping you find the right staff, teaching you how to build cocktails and uh, even menu design. Uh, we're pretty limited on food at the moment. We kind of stick towards the spirits end of everything, but uh, we're looking to expand into that in the future. Excellent. So I noticed that you take your uh, cocktail mixing beyond my level of experience, which is basically rum and Coke or soda 
and whiskey or whatever. <laughs> like if you say the name of it, I can make that happen. But but let's see what you got here. You got this uh, Monkey 47. Tell me about this. This is a gin, right? That's correct. So Monkey 47 is a small batch gin out of Germany. You don't really get a lot of German gins. No, so never heard of it. definitely um, a little bit new on the market. And it's lavender forward. So you're not going to get that overpowering juniper, and it's very light and floral. So it really works well for classic cocktails like the Aviator, things like that. Um, the cocktail we're going to be making today is my own twist on the Aviator, uh, just a little bit different. And I, I'm going to use a flower that's called a Chinese butterfly pea, and it's going to react with the citric acid in the cocktail, and it'll actually change colors. So I call the cocktail Monkey Shines because it's a uh, little bit of a play there. <laughs> Clever, I love that. Yeah, German gin, I haven't heard of uh, much at all. So it's lavender, you said, it's, it's a, would you say it's a little more delicate with the botanicals rather than, uh, like, juniper is pretty big when you're tasting it. It takes over a lot of flavors. Yeah, this is definitely a lot more light and floral, so it's going to be uh, a great mixing cocktail for stuff that you don't want that overpowering gin. You want more of just, like, a nice, soft, delicate cocktail. Awesome. Show us what you got. I would normally use the actual dried flowers to create this process, but I don't have any at the moment. So we're going to go with an extract. Works the same, just not as much fun. The color on that is gorgeous. It's like a deep bluish purple. Looks fantastic already. It's going to be a nice blue when it's all done. So we'll get there in a second. Can never go wrong with chartreuse, right? Shaken, not stirred. That's such a cool color, too. Yeah, it's, it's blue, but it's going to change colors here in a second. And you can really smell lavender. So this is going to change colors. Wanna be our guinea pig on this one? Tell us what you're tasting. Look at that, look at how that changed to purple. That is gorgeous. Awesome, this is called Monkey Shines apparently. What is your name? Megan. Megan, we're gonna have Megan taste this and uh, tell us what she thinks. She's not spitting it out. Very floral. Very floral, very gin. Floral and tart, there you have it. Thanks, Roy, appreciate your time. Those are so interesting. I appreciate you having me. All right.
So what did you uh, what did you think of the drink? It was uh it was incredibly interesting. Incredibly yeah. everyone that tried it really liked it. Um uh I don't know that it's a go have a whole bunch of them, but oh, it yeah. was really interesting. <laughs> did you see the way it changed color in the video? Like it, yeah. like when he makes it up just boosh, all of a sudden it yeah. turns it Oh, it's like, fascinating. He's got he's got everything a good mixologist needs. He has the knowledge of what he's doing and then he has the showmanship. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. He, he's definitely got that down. Speaking of something you can drink a whole bunch of that's what made uh, Goose Island uh, 312 Urban Wheat Ale their flagship beer. Is it was something that people, you know, it was a low enough alcohol content. People could drink it in place of drinking a lighter lager like a Budweiser or a Miller. And it is uh, actually, I believe, now the flagship Goose Island beer is the IPA. I think it has overtaken yeah. 312. But if you've read the book... This is the brew that kind of got everybody going, and uh, if I don't spill it all over myself here, uh, it's the brew that kind of got everybody going and really accelerated Goose Island's, Goose Island's growth in Chicago and the surrounding area, and that's what really became their their strong point was was the the three one two just fueled them to the point where they really couldn't make enough of it. In fact, Josh even said in our interview earlier, uh, at one point it was eighty percent of the production of the brewery, and it was driving them crazy because they were having to cut back on production of the oh, Sophie and the else, Matilda yeah. and the Bourbon County uh, uh, Stout and the stuff that they really, really wanted uh, to be able to use to you know continue to further their reputation as a really specialty craft brewery and uh, it's fascinating because i really think of goose island less in terms of those specialty brews and more in terms of the 312 and the honkers and their uh, pale ale and really in chicago the reputation was built around uh, it's kind of like you could think of um uh, you could think of st arnold's in terms of the uh, the mainstream more mainstream beers that they make the uh, amber and 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 those but if you really get down to it, they're almost more known now for the Divine Reserve right, and the Bishop's right. Barrel. That's what really drives people people's passion. Uh, for That's what people stand so, in line for, right? Exactly, right, and right. it was the same with Goose Island. Uh, but three one two was what uh, was what really put them on the map in bars and at retail, and really made them the money that sort of fueled the early growth. Now, did you ever have three one two in its heyday? Apparently. Yes. Well, I don't know if it was a Tayday. I've had it several years ago. Um, and I will tell you that I'm not as fond of wheat ale as I am of some other uh, of other styles of beer. So it, I, I thought it was good, but it wasn't something that became a go-to for me, even though it's very drinkable and has a little bit of like lemoniness to it, which is very pleasant. That lemon is killing me on yeah. this. Yeah, killing it, you in a good way or a bad no, way? no, 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 not in a good you're way. Not it. This no would way. not be. I, it, I remember thinking at the time of, this, uh, of reading the book, if this is the go-to in Chicago, I'm glad that I don't live. Like I would much rather, to my palate, have a Shiner Bach. I would. I would have love this to, style of beer. I would love to have tasted this in the heyday and, and taste it versus this mm -hmm. because this um, and and and. Um, uh, Josh also said that this he is just this a shadow, is a shadow of its former of its self. former self, and I mm -hmm. believe it. This tastes to me like it could be something interesting, but I mean, there's nothing on the front end that makes this interesting, and there's there's that there's that slight malt funkiness, mm -hmm. or, not, or not malt, but a uh, slight wheat funkiness on the tail end, and then um and then lemon, and that lemon is frankly 
annoying. It's not working for you. It's not working Goose for Island me at beer, all. Goose Island Beer Company, it says on the side, Chicago, Illinois, Baldwinsville, New York, and Fort Collins, Colorado. And what it doesn't They're go like, on to say- We don't know where the heck we're making it. We're just tossing it out the door. What it doesn't What it doesn't go on to say is uh, brewed in Bud Light Tanks in Fort Collins, Colorado, right. Chicago, Illinois. This tastes, this, you know, let me be frank, this tastes like it was a good beer that was brewed in Bud Light Tanks. Well, I, it's, it's a good way of putting it because had you poured this for me during the light beer challenge, I would have I wouldn't have batted an eye at right. thinking at thinking for a moment that it was any higher quality from a flavor standpoint than any of the light beers we were trying, the Amstel yeah. lights or, or the others. Uh to me it's just it's just very random. Like I much prefer the Honkers Ale. I much way prefer, prefer the Honkers Ale yeah. over the mm-hmm. over the three one two right now. Like after this taste, this is not something I'd go out and buy. Right. Like this is not a, a me thing at all. I got five more bottles. If you <laughs> <laughs> no, are you going to put them upside down you know, in a margarita? Honestly, you know, no, I will not be doing that. Honestly, it's not a bad beer. There just isn't anything about it's it. It's not interesting, right? It's there isn't anything about it that, that I mean. I there's, find that it's, there's almost there's a little bit of that wheat funkiness on the on the tail end that that just it's it says maybe maybe, but then it then that lemon hits you. And it's like meh. If if there was. If there was something a little more complex about this back in the day, I wish I could have tried this yeah. fresh from the tap in the tap room on Fulton Street in Chicago. Right, right. That might have been. Well, they, they, then I might have understood. Yeah, you know they I mean? also talk about in a book the uh, the difference in the the brewing equipment how how the uh, the bigger vats made it much more difficult to get the flavor profile oh, that's of this right. particular beer. That, that's beer. right. And so maybe they're fighting that, and maybe they got as close as they can or whatever. But This one tastes like they struggled a little bit. Yeah, to it. me, this is this is not something I'd buy again. It's, it's right. you know. When we come back, we're going to taste a Goose Island beer that I do not expect you to dislike uh, or, or to be even um, uh, as disappointed in let's say as this because I, it's something that i've seen you taste before and know that you like yes and it's goose island sophie it's a saison uh, style beer it's a belgian and it's something i remember you actually flipping out a little bit over well let me explain to you i don't have to taste this okay but i'm damn sure going to <laughs> we are not only going to taste that we're going to knock on heaven's door and taste bob dylan's tennessee hey. bourbon Hey, 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 yeah. Just remember, Bob Dylan didn't actually do that. No, he didn't. And we'll be right back with uh, a taste of greatness, let's hope, uh, on uh, Smoking and Toasting. It's show number 94, by the way. What's up with that? <laughs> it puts us a month and a half away from 100. I know. So you saw the email go out, right? I did. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, that is uninteresting, really. On the beach in Hawaii. Welcome back to Smoking and Toasting. Uh, because we wanted to, uh, you know, devote the proper amount of time to our interview with Josh Knoll uh, today, who wrote the Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out book. Uh, we're doing today's show in four segments instead of five. Normally it's five, uh, but that segment was, uh, you know, a little longer than usual. So uh, today, great, today will be four. Oh, I loved uh, talking to him. I, I found him fascinating. I found his book fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, and I recommend it to anybody who is at all interested in craft beer or the history of craft beer, or if you just want an interesting business book. It's a, it's a kind of an interesting 
interesting business. Yeah, I uh, I downloaded mine right onto my Kindle, mm-hmm. and, and that's nice because then you can read it on any device you have yes, on any app I like you want. That. Yep. Um, but uh, it should be available also on audiobook coming up pretty soon. I would have gotten it on audiobook because I do a lot of audiobooks. You're but an it wasn't audiobook available. guy, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. You know, well, I wear this little earpiece all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> this little Bluetooth earpiece. He's one of those. Right, because I actually feel like a Luddite if I have to put the phone to my head. <laughs> right. Like, I just don't. I, I won't talk on the phone if I have to talk to you that way. Like, that's I'm so far beyond it. I hold in my hand a bottle of Tennessee bourbon whiskey. This is Heaven's Door. I am now. I knew you were going to do it. Hold on, do that again. I got to get. Right. I like how we're not in sync. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did that on purpose. It's like it's like when you watch YouTube videos on your TV. Have you noticed this? Like it's something about time. watching them on your TV adds just this tiniest bit of uh, lag time. So you're go- so you're hi hi or it's like watching those uh, those old uh, kung fu movies yeah. that are dubbed as a so. But anyway, uh, let's see if we can get this to sync out right. I want to open this bottle of whiskey and see what. Oh, this sounds like a creepy old door. Kind of, well, Bob Dylan's not a young man, so. It sounds like I'm Bob Dylan's surprised. knees. Yeah. I don't even know if I'm making any headway here. Yeah, it's. it's and. Uh, well, it's, this is. Uh, oh, you, you got it. Somewhat embarrassing because we've never had this much trouble opening a bottle of. And I'm not like exaggerating. The, that angel, sound, the angels the are not getting their share of that one. No, they are definitely not. Well, this will be interesting. It's about out of there, as you can see. I don't know if we're going to get that satisfying pop. I think it's just going to be. Maybe. Oh, oh there it was. A, you know that may have actually been worth the uh, <laughs> worth, worth the wait because worth, worth the cruise versus that the cork was a satisfying <laughs> pop. Yeah, I, I may have to let you put the cork back into this thing. Uh, <laughs> we may have to get a hammer. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work out. but uh, uh, So there are several Bob Dylan whiskeys on the market. This uh, I went with the Tennessee bourbon, straight bourbon whiskey, but there are several uh, several different kinds. Um, the cost of this bottle, I want to say, was about $44, $46. So that's, that's where we are at in terms of the... Of the actual cost, if we want to do a little P to Q on this, um, P to Q is our price to quality ratio that we talk about here on the show. So, the price to quality ratio—that's you know—that's an important point to me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm okay with spending a lot of money on something that tastes like it's worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I am not okay with spending a lot of money on something that tastes like I could have bought it for fifteen dollars in a plastic bottle. But I'm not too proud to buy something for fifteen dollars in no, a plastic bottle. No, if it's bottle. good, it's if good. It's, if it's worth the fifteen, you know? or perhaps even more. So, uh, so with that in mind, Heaven's Door, and you can see I'm going to hold this right up close. You can see actually above the words Heaven's Door is the HD Heaven's Door logo. So uh, I want to say, yeah, and this is vanilla. Got- Cinnamon. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cinnamon on the on the smell on this. It says here featuring uncommon blends, special barrel finishes, and rare stocks. Heaven's Door whiskey is a tribute to the uncompromising Maple. spirit within. Small batch collection. They have straight rye, they have a double barrel, and they have Tennessee bourbon. This is the Tennessee bourbon. Yeah. So, so I'm getting like just off the smell. I'm I'm getting maple. I'm getting. Um, oh, I like, like it on the smell. Like a lot. charred oak. I'm getting. Um, 
a sweetness that I can't quite pinpoint. I'm the, getting uh, the nose on cinnamon, this is, lots of cinnamon. Yeah, the nose on this is actually really nice, more complex than I would have expected from a celebrity. Oh, and I, I know, this may sound nuts. I may just be crazy, but almost a little bubble gum. Wow, I've never heard that ascribed to a whiskey before. I'm just going to show the bottle because I was here looking at it like from the back, and you can kind of see through the bottle there is the Bob Dylan signature on the inside back of the label that you can see through the uh, the bottle. When you, I think that, that bubble gum is like the sugary sweetness that I'm smelling. Probably so. Probably like, are, so. are you smelling this at all? Are you backing I, me I'm up? I'm getting a little. Uh, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm not yes. totally nuts, right? Yeah, no, no, it's it's there. It's, it's it's not strong, but it's there. Now again, that's just on the nose. Like I classic bubble gum, like like you right. get out of a like you get out of a like baseball but, cards, right? You know? And the kind that came with the little cartoon in it. Remember yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's pink. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Pink bubble gum with the sugar stuff visible yeah, around yeah. it. Yes. Yes, that's so, what that's what that makes me so. So that and cinnamon. This is this smells interesting. I'm going to tell you the bubble gum doesn't go away once you've taken a sip. Really? Mm-hmm. Ha. Huh. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Tick. Tock. I actually really like it. Oh yeah. Yes. The bubble gum included. Bubble gum included because it's not. That isn't the dominant flavor. You get lots of the sort of maple and vanilla and uh, a little bit of the corn, you know. A little corn, bit of, yeah. there's definitely mm-hmm. a lot of corn in that flavor, yeah. too. You know what? I kind of like it because of that, though. The corn adds a bitter uh, bite to it. And the bubblegum like, pulls a little of that Yeah, out. <laughs> balances a lot of that sweetness that you're smelling. Bob Dylan, how much bubblegum do you put in your You know biscuit? what's funny is I don't really smell the corn very much. mm like, but it's very present in the flavor. I didn't get it on the nose at all, but I definitely get it when I'm drinking it. This is actually... This is complex. Mm-hmm. Actually, more complex than I might have expected. Yeah, and it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it really makes me want a cigar. It's got... Yeah, it's actually got more heat than a lot of um, mm-hmm. whiskeys we've had in... Uh, <laughs> than a lot of whiskeys we've had in this price range. It has quite a bit of heat, actually, Yeah, there's on the back. no yeah. doubt. Mm-hmm. On this, uh, you almost but, expect it's leaving my mouth water though. It's, well, it's, here's here's what I'm experiencing now that I've had a couple sips of this. The heat is still resident on the very back of my tongue, but right up by the tip, I'm getting a little bit of that sweetness, right. that bubblegum. I'm gonna I'm gonna do this to you. Okay, take mm-hmm. take a small sip, mm-hmm. ruminate it a little bit, and then I want you to retrohale. And while you're retrohaling, I'm gonna say root beer. Wow. Yeah. Root beer. Not on the finish, but on the retro. On the retro hail. <laughs> now the retro hails, by the way, when you have a uh, when you try it and then you take a nice long breath out of your nose mm-hmm. and you taste different flavors that way. Root beer shows up very prominently right there. Almost like a and this sounds negative in a way that I don't mean, but almost like a root beer candy. Yeah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like a root beer flavored hard candy of some sort. This is intriguing and interesting. I have to tell you, I like it. I'm actually thrilled that we've had this much to talk about. Yeah, I'm <laughs> about. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. That it's not just like very straightforward one or two notes. You know, 
This is uh, this is worth having because the bottle is that cool and the whiskey's pretty good. And it's Bob Dylan. So and you it's can, Bob Dylan. You, know, you can you know show people the signature through the through the uh, bottle here. Uh, you know, uh, in general, the whiskey and and beer and all the, the trends of the celebrities getting into this stuff. In general, I find a bit troubling. Yeah, but. I don't know. This measures up pretty well. Well, because most of the celebrity stuff is, hey, here's random generic whiskey. It's forty mm-hmm. percent. Blah blah blah. Put your name on it. Let's package it. Send it out the door. Mm, hops. Not, <laughs> not too far. Remember a few weeks back, I brought the J.R. Ewing one. Right. It was actually pretty good. Yeah. For, and, for the price, it was and good. price point, it mm-hmm. was pretty good. Pardon this me. Which is, I'm surprised. This it is was certainly that. a much better whiskey than the J.R. Ewing. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Much better. Yes, it is. And, and this is what? Only $10 more? Yeah, I was, believe it's about $46. Okay, so $16 more. Now, the J.R. Ewing wasn't bad, and it was less than $30, I think, right at $30 mm-hmm. with great packaging. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I feel like I bought a great $25 whiskey with $4 mm-hmm. worth of packaging. Yeah. You know, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, all right. So we got a lot going on on the show, and uh, I did want to share this one thing with you, which I will do while I'm uh, uh, opening the the Sophie. Uh, Bell's Two Hearted Ale deserves our congratulations today because it has repeated for the second year in a row as the best beer in America, named so by the American Homebrewers Association and uh, reported in Zmurgy, Z-Y-M-U-R-G-Y, Zmurgy Magazine and their list. And that wasn't, uh, by the way, a, uh, a Bell's Too Hard that was opening. Uh, but, uh, but the brewers of the American Homebrewers Association uh, can discern the subtle differences between a good beer and an outstanding beer, says director Gary Glass. And this is the second year in a row for Two Hearted Ale. Uh, it comes after they claimed the top spot uh, for an eight-year span with their double IPA. Uh, or not their double IPA. The, the top spot was claimed for eight years by Pliny the Elder, the double IPA uh, from um, Russian River. Mm. And uh, then uh, Russian River, you may remember, congratulated last year their friends at Bell's with a case of Pliny mm-hmm. when Bell's took the number one spot. And that survey puts Bell's again uh, at number one, Pliny at number two. Uh, the rest of the top five, uh, another Bell's. Their double IPA, Hop Slam, came in at number four overall. Uh, Stowe, Vermont, The Alchemist. Uh, their heady topper was in the top five, as well as Sierra Nevada's classic American Pale Ale in a three-way tie with two beers from Founders from Grand Rapids, I Michigan. So, so yeah. I, I just want to point out uh, while you're pouring that 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 Bell's Two Hearted Ale is so good, it is oh, it amazing. Is. It is so good, and and I will tell you, and I challenge everybody out there: get a Bell's Two Hearted mm-hmm. Ale and a rye whiskey. You've said before Most that that makes a wonderful now, combination. I've tried it with a few. My favorite so far is Basil Hayden Rye. Mm, interesting. But, man, I don't know why that particular IPA, and IPAs go with rye pretty well anyway, but mm-hmm. that particular IPA and a rye whiskey, they form like Voltron. They make something amazing. Mm. Yes. They form like Voltron. They form like <laughs> that's, Voltron. That's good. Form like Voltron. I'm going to quote you on that. That's a good one. (laughs) So I will say that shortly after we launched the show, I bet we hadn't done more than two episodes. So we're at, what, 96? So this has been quite a while ago. Uh, Ian and I went over to a place that's across the street from where I live that was having a little Goose Island uh, 
food pairing yeah. tasting event. And while we were there, we enjoyed, I think, the Goose IPA and a couple of the other uh, things and, and certainly enjoyed what the chefs had prepared. Had fun talking to the Goose Island rep. He was a super nice guy. And then he brought us a sample of this beer right here. Sophie, one of the specialty brews that Goose Island became beloved in Chicago uh, for brewing. This is one of the ones that uh, that really put them on the map with the serious beer um, aficionados, the beer nerds. Uh, the Sophie is a little bit different every year, uh, and it's a Belgian-style saison. And I mention all of this story because it was the first time, I think, that you and I were hanging out that I saw you just absolutely flip out over a beer. Like, you were hugely a fan of the Sophie. So I thought it would be interesting, even though, according to everything we've read in Josh Knoll's book, when AB InBev took over Goose Island, uh, one of the things that happened is the uh, the more mainstream beers, the pale, the urban wheat ale and the honkers, those were the ones that got exported to the other Anheuser-Busch breweries, leaving them more room in the Fulton Street Chicago brewery to beer the special to brew the specialty things like Sophie and their Bourbon County uh, uh, Stout. Um, so the word should be that this beer has not lost any of its original, you know, flavoring or or brilliance or dominance. I'm going to be real curious to see what you think. Of I don't this know what it tasted back. like originally. Yeah. I know what this tastes like now, and this is uh, slightly different from what I remember. That was a year and a half ago or mm-hmm. so, or more mm-hmm. like that. This is slightly different from that, but just as good. Uh, this is a lot of things that I want in a beer. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, the aroma is huge. Mm-hmm. The really aroma is. is huge. It's a fruity fact, funkiness. We were in the middle of something. I think I was telling you about the Bell's story. When I opened this, and I immediately yeah. got that fruit on the nose just the, from opening the, the bottle. The fruity funkiness of this, um, and and funky, it has this over-ripeness going on, mm-hmm. but it also has, like, um, on the uh, on the aftertaste, it has a little bit of uh, under-ripeness going on. And, like, That's really interesting you say that, and it's absolutely true. Over-ripeness on the front end, yeah. and almost some under-ripeness like on the back. Like a little bit too green on the apple or a little bit too you know like the pears a little too hard or something like that but but delicious at the same time and this mm-hmm. has so much complexity to it i truly enjoy a, a beer like this because <clears throat> it brings so many things like i can sit here and talk about all the different things i'm tasting this is fantastic one of the most interesting things i thought about the book was the description of greg hall who is John Hall, the owner of, of uh, mm-hmm. the original owner of Goose Island, his son, who became the brewmaster. Yeah. And not because he got the job because he was daddy's boy. He got the job basically by earning his way. Yeah. He kind of worked his way up through the ranks. But he became the great sort of experimenter yeah. of Goose Island. He was the real creative force and the guy that created this beer as well as Matilda and the Bourbon County uh, 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 Bourbon Barrel Stout. He loved to go out and do beer and food pairing uh-huh. dinners, and he would very often do that with uh, mm-hmm. with this. And I can, in tasting the complexity that's in this beer, I, you can really see how this would be very interesting going with certain. This foods. can instantaneously take the place of any fine white wine. Mm-hmm. I like think that's, that's right. That's the flavor and that was, profile. That was actually part of their goal. 
when they were developing these beers yeah. at Goose Island. This is sophisticated enough to keep up with any wine that you wanted to put this in. I mean, it would have to be a pretty out outrageous wine to have more interest and profile than this. So to summarize on our day, fairly pedestrian on the Honker's Ale, actually a little disappointing on the yeah. 312. Well, well, hold on, where's my little thing? Here? <laughs> yeah, you'll find it. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, that was different than I was expecting. No, it's but, not the one I but wanted. But it worked. Yeah, that's what there I was expecting. Is. So, so fairly pedestrian on the Honkers Ale. A little disappointing on the three one two. So their their mainstream beers, if you will, um, we were a little disappointed with, and yet really still knocked out by uh, by their more complex by right. by, by Sophie now. I'm going to tell you that we really attempt to do these tastings in as fair a way as possible. I mean, I will tell you that Shiner Bach is a beer that I really enjoy. It's certainly not a complex, like over the top, right. crazy, uh, you know, beer snob beer like this. But I recognize what it represents and where it is. And I think for the style that they're doing, it's a really well crafted. And good beer. They're very drinkable. If, if we were drinking that, I wouldn't have said it was just pedestrian. I wouldn't have said I was disappointed. I'd have said, you know what? These guys make a damn fine beer, even if it's not really a Bach. And and that's, I guess, the context that I would want to put this whole conversation in, because these are the two beers out of the three we've tried, if you believe what's in the book, that Anheuser-Busch has touched. And the Sophie, not so much. The Sophie remains as delicious as I think we both remember. These two, we were a little disappointed in. So I don't know what that tells you about, you know, one of the things about the book is that Josh really wants you to draw your own conclusions. He doesn't try to make, I was actually going to try in the interview to pin him down. And then I realized he was, that was really one of his points of the book is you know, did craft beer win or did craft beer lose? Yeah. Um, but you can kind of add that to your thoughts that you're considering as you make your own conclusions. Did craft beer win or lose by big beer getting into the craft arena? I think Well, been- I think what that represents is if you have some beers like this, craft beer can brew a lot of those things. And a lot of people don't have to have <laughs> the most consistent craft beer. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we know from breweries local that the beer can sometimes be a little one way or the other, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's better or worse. It just means sometimes it's a little different. You know, mm-hmm. you're brewing, you're mm-hmm. cooking, you're a chef. Of course, yeah. You it, know, every, it's not going to taste exactly the same every time, um, whereas, no matter how hard you Whereas try. a company like AB InBev structures their entire company around the fact that they brew the exact same beer, the exact same flavor profile everywhere. Mm-hmm. They have a Houston brewery. They have brewery in Colorado. They have breweries everywhere, all over the place. And the liquid comes out the exact same no matter whether. It's an amazing consistency. Mm-hmm. Is that good for beer? Maybe, but not for craft beer, I think. Because it, we're allowed to have a little inconsistency. It's really comparable. If you go to McDonald's and order the Quarter Pounder with cheese, you're happy that it tastes like exactly what you expected the quarter pounder with cheese, right? Whether you're in like. Newark, right, or whether you're in right. Washington. In fact, you know? one of the complaints you'll get from people who are Americans who travel into Europe is they stopped at a McDonald's and it didn't taste right. Okay, 
If you're an American, you're traveling to Europe. Why are you stopping me at McDonald's? I know, I know. <laughs> but but the the larger point though is this: you can go to a chef's restaurant, and sometimes the dishes aren't going to taste exactly like they tasted perhaps the last time you ordered them, and that's because there's more freedom of expression and experimentation going on. Right. And and so the same is really true yeah. for craft beer, and uh, and with that, I think we will wrap our discussion of. Um, Goose Island and Anheuser-Busch and the crazy story of big beer taking over uh, smaller beer. Or as the book says, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and how craft beer became big business. I recommend the book highly. Uh, And uh, it was a little longer show than usual today, but I really enjoyed talking to Josh, and I really enjoyed doing these tastings, and I even enjoyed knocking on Heaven's Door. Have a great week, my friends, and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy whatever you're drinking, wherever it's made. And, of course, as we always like to say, cheers. <laughs> cheers.